0: love talk radio i'm a truth terrorist i'm a knowledge gangster i'm a black history hitman. man i'm a lie killer urban gorilla i gotta be a rough nag free to black panthers fcbp stand for free to black panthers it's up the black police that 13th amendment trying to make a slave of me you can lock like my body, can't trap my mind, not will ever be free. Okay, free the Black Panthers, FTBP stand for free the Black Panthers, and fuck the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership rose, but we still here, finna build here, pro Show. They got me started, lying hearted, I'm the new Mufasa. And I'm all about Umoja, first in groups, Usaba. Let's bring back the black families, we need our father. Single mama, son and daughter, that's root of the problem. Wise up, we wise up. unity so powerful. Black banks, black schools, black on black power moves. Khalid Muhammad We gon' make your day a holiday I fuck me, i Free the Black Panthers F B B P. Stand for Free the Black Panthers up the Black Police That 13th Amendment Tryna make a slave of me You can like my body, can't trap my mind Not forever ever be free, okay Free the Black Panthers F B B P. Stand for Free the Black Panthers up the Black Police the infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles But we still here, in the bill here, Upcoin sell Pro RBG, R.B.G., 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 R.B.G. RBG My sisters, my brothers, the council, the elders, that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess, regardless, my heart just don't fuck with misogyny. Foolish that don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. Barack up, another conversation. Trump gonna in get inaugurated. Damn. Unify or die. NBPP.org. First and foremost, the
1: new Black Panther Party I've never had any that.
0: We need our own nation.
2: Welcome to Possibility Project. This is our 35th episode, which is just wild. Um, today we're talking about appropriation and reparations. How can we take restorative action? And so Possibility Project is a growing community of disruptive change makers reclaiming our power through meaningful sparks, connections, and actions. I'm so excited that you're here and joining us today. If you have missed any of the previous episodes, you can see any of them on possibilityproject.org. There's 34 other amazing episodes that have occurred, um, so you can check those out. And all of the episodes are also posted by our friend Mickey Desai on his podcast, Nonprofit Snapcast, and he also has them on another new podcast called Inclusion Catalyst. And if you look at that, um, that link to the Google Doc, you'll see links to Mickey's work And so I will uh, keep moving. So I am Heather Hiscox. I'm the co-creator of Possibility Project and now the host. And um, this was started in, I'll describe myself and I'll talk about how it all came to be. But for anyone that might be disabled visually, um, I'm a white woman with light skin, freckles, red hair, blue eyes, and I'm wearing a bright blue top and a a blue room with art behind me. And I'm coming to you from the land that was kept and held sacred by the Tono Autumn and Pascoyaki people. I honor these ancestral keepers of the land where I am now living, and I honor their descendants who continue to breathe sacred life into this earth. Um, The the territory acknowledgments we do mention, and you'll see a link in that Google Doc, um, is just one small part about disrupting, dismantling colonial structures. So if you want to know more about it, please go to that resource, nativeland.ca. And I also want to acknowledge that many of our guests um, not, on, not on this episode entirely, but many of our guests do present a US-based perspective, but we are open to perspectives from all places and spaces, I just want to recognize that. Um, so I'm Heather Hiscock, CEO and founder of a company called Pause for Change, and I work with nonprofits, local governments, and philanthropy to learn new problem-solving skills. So this was co-created in March of 2020, just to provide a space where we to have conversations about these more disruptive topics. And it's just gone on and on (laughs) from there because the community has grown, and so many people are driving benefit from these chats. So I really hope you will stay connected and come back for more in the future. Um, These are the goals of Possibility Project to bring together this community, stimulate this new thinking, and a thirst for this deep change that we're longing for and we want to reimagine, work collaboratively to see what's possible, and then start with ourselves. I I think, Catherine, you were saying on our speaker chat, that stuck with me the quote that the revolution starts from within. It starts with all of us, and so I I love that thinking, and so we really hold that in this space. And This is an entirely volunteer (laughs) project, so if you can support in any way to make it possible, um, that would be fantastic. So you can go to um, opencollective.com slash possibilityproject, they're our fiscal sponsor. And in the Google Doc, you'll also see that we have a LinkedIn community that right now has 810 other changemakers. So please join and click that link as well. And so um, this is how our time is going to flow together. We do things a little bit differently. So if you've never attended, I like to tell you about the agenda. So we're going to do intros. I'm almost done. You'll meet our amazing guests. And then the first part, we always ask two questions on every episode. What's dysfunctional about this topic that you wanna disappear? So that's how do we get here and what is messed up? Um, What's emerging that gives you hope is our next question. Then there'll be opportunity for Q and A. So all along as questions pop up for you, please put them in the chat and I will start to go through those and be prepared to ask our speakers your questions. And then we'll go to breakout rooms. After our speakers do intros, you will meet another beautiful person here today. And then once our speakers are done with their two segments um, and we do our Q&A, you'll be sent back to a group of two others, so it'll be three total, just to talk about and debrief what you've heard so far and have a space for deeper connection. And then we'll come back for some takeaways and I'll talk about the next episode on September the 15th. So the why behind this, um, and Julie spoke to this in her comment, like, we hear about reparations, we believe in the necessity and power of it, but what does it look like in real life? What are ways that we can make change? What do organizations do? Um, you know, what, what's behind all of it? And I'm excited about the next episode as well, which is really about um, just redistribution of wealth. So I feel like this episode and the next episode really connect together to talk about money and movement. Money is medicine. Um, you know, how can we really think about wealth and redistribution in different ways? So we're starting with appropriation and reparations in this chat. So our speakers are so awesome. I have known of them and and known them for a couple of years and I've been trying to find the perfect opportunity to bring them together and and on what topic. So I'm so excited to introduce Catherine Evans, president of Rooted Strategy, Tommy Johnson, chief education officer of Made with Black Culture, and Alan Quabena from Pong, co-creator and managing partner of Ad Astra Collective. I'm so excited that they're here, and we do introductions a little bit differently. Um, and You've read their impressive bios in the reminder emails that you received, so you see how phenomenal they and their work are, but we like to have our speakers tell a little story, <laughs> just something that's interesting, fun, intriguing about them, just so they become instantly human. You've seen their bios, but they're they're just phenomenal people. So I'm wondering, Catherine, will
3: you kick us off and let us know how you're doing today and, and what you want to share with us? Absolutely. Thanks, Harry Thanks, everyone. Um, glad to be here with you today. I'm Catherine Evans. I am in Kansas City, which is what we call the unceded territory of the Kaw, Teton, and SH people. Um, this is a home that I have chosen for myself and my family, and I'm grateful to be joining you from here and connecting with people. It looks like all over the country. So. Um, I am going to share um, what is right in front of me. So I have the space that I'm in right now is kind of my sacred space. It's my place, I work, I meditate, I do coaching work and um, have family time in this room. So everything that is set in this space is very intentional. And the three things that are sitting right in front of me, I want to share with you. Um, The first one is this is a little robot that my five and a half year old daughter made out of, um, some 3d puzzle pieces. Uh, it showed up on my desk one day and I wondered where it came from and she told me she made it and I just kept it there and it kind of just reminds me of her throughout the day I like the way it looks. Um, and then I have this little framed picture of a little stick person doing a warrior pose, it says power, and um, it's, it's framed with a black frame and I received this as a um, as a token from a mentor that I had years ago in um, my early career as a community organizer. And I just have always kept it front and center to remind me of my own power, the source of power that I have that um, brings me into this work and allows me to be resilient and sustained in everything that I do. And then the final item I'll share with you is my little kitchen timer, which I keep on my desk because I, Just like to hold myself accountable to not letting work linger on too long. And so I sometimes will set a timer. When I'm getting ready to do a task or a project, I'll set a timer for myself. And when the time is up, I am done. So it's my little way of, of keeping myself accountable to how precious and valuable my time is so that I don't squander it. So that's it.
2: I love that. Thank you for sharing all of those. Yeah, it's always fascinating. If people could see what's, in, like, behind the screen, <laughs> that would be very interesting. One day we should all just post that on LinkedIn and be like, and here's the mess behind, like, the clear background. Um, Tommy, would you please share a story with us?
4: Yes, yes. Peace and blessings, everyone. Welcome. Thank you so much for your energy, your attention, your presence. It's honor to be here. Big up to you, Heather, for uh, consistency, um, 35 episodes, it's a big deal, and um, as an organizer myself, I, I know the energy that goes into being consistent. That's right? the beautiful thing about consistency, is it leads to everything good, and you see the manifestation of that with all the people who are tuning in today. Um, a story about myself, I'm outside of my, you know, my highest passion of organizing Black America, for another on their progress, I'm, I'm actually, I'm also a Mountaineer. And um I live in, I live here in Los Angeles and part of the reason I'm originally from Baltimore. Um I moved to LA about seven years ago from New York. And my pure inspiration for moving here was I just wanted um better weather, uh fresh food and access to more nature. And um, that's exactly what I what I got when I came here. What I always um tell my father Thank you for giving me access to nature. Um, you know, nature is is everything. It, it, it heals us. There's nothing to project on in nature. Um, so you get a chance to be and you get a chance to feel all of the energy, be with yourself, and just really observe the natural flow of things. And the story for me that always connects me to nature was when I was in sixth grade in Baltimore, my my parents blessed me with a four-wheeler, an ATV. And when I tell you it was hands down one of the most prolific gifts I could have ever received, it changed my life drastically um, because we lived next to a, like a a forest area. So there were trails and wild animals and creeks. And um, being able to get on there and ride through these trails and see like herds of deer and, going through these creeks and running over fish and frogs and just parking with my friends to sit down and eat in the middle of like nowhere. Um, It really, really was the, what I call, trampoline point for my love for nature, for my understanding of nature, for um, the peace that I felt just being there. Because we would literally be, we would leave the house at maybe 11, and I would come back at like 6, at night, 7, right before the sun went down. So it would be a full day of just riding around on the trails and discovering new places miles and miles away. But it was in those moments of like pausing and having a conversation with friends and seeing the way animals work and move that I really began to understand not only my own nature, but just the power of how all of our solutions and answers to how we can operate harmoniously actually – the examples are in nature. Um, so I wanted to share that story because um, at the end of the day, for me, um, you know, we are looking to create a more harmonious world, harmonious environment, harmonious home, harmonious relationships. And um, my ultimate, like, grounding source is always nature, whether that means going outside and taking off my shoes, just standing in the grass centering myself that way. Uh, or going on a hike or going backpacking camp. Um, but it all goes back to 6th grade, 11 years old, uh, being gifted with the an ATV and that being my access point to discover all types of, of nature. So I look at myself as an urban naturalist. Um, I love all things metropolitan, um, but I'm really, really outside of that, like, my ideal thing would probably be to live on a farm somewhere with, like, 15 dogs and um, enjoy the land. <laughs> so that's my story.
2: <laughs> oh, I love it. I'm right there with you. I am right there with you. Yes, nature is the go-to place for restoration. Absolutely. Alan, let's meet you now.
5: Hey, folks. How's everybody doing? Um I'm just glad to be on the call with with everybody. Thank you, Heather. And I'm excited to just, you know, rock and roll with Catherine and Tommy, you know. And I've known Tommy for, you know, a good minute. It feels like we've been brothers for a long time. And Catherine, I'm just excited for us to rock and roll now and then until <laughs> I'll post this call. But um, Alan Quabana from Pong here. Kwabana uh, means born on a Tuesday it is the day of the river, uh, of the Akan people, uh, of the Ashanti folks back in Ghana and West Africa. So I always do a shout out to my Ghanaians if there are any on the call. <laughs> Whether directly or if you're a friend of the family, we all welcome you because we're a people of gratitude. Of course, Afia, there we go. There's always one. <laughs> um, But uh, as I put in the chat, I am in Inglewood, California, uh, not too far actually from Tommy uh, on Tongva land. Um, And yeah, I, you know, as we think about the topic that we're discussing today, um, the other piece about me is that I'm a big lover of art and music. And I also co-founded a uh, cooperative called Zeal, which is a creative agency and social impact collaborative. Uh, we operate as a cooperative, and uh, we create spaces for Black artists to thrive. And uh, yesterday I was with my good friend uh, Tia Oso, who's also uh, one of my business partners, uh, cooperative members in, in, in Zeal. And uh, one of the songs that uh, we talk about in the work that we always go back to uh, when we start talking about reparations is this song by The Staples, I don't know if folks are familiar with them, but if you know Mavis Staple, you must. You have to, because if you don't, you you must get acquainted. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and put a link in the chat to one of their songs, but it's When Will We Be Paid? And this is one of Tia's favorite songs. And so (laughs) I'm sharing it because whenever uh, Tia and I are in conversations about... This topic around reparations, the song comes up <laughs> and she'll start singing again. <laughs> and it really makes me think of that time when the, the, the staple singers were creating this song and uh this was actually in the 70s you know so i wasn't born in the 70s i'm a child of the 80s but i'm definitely a lover of the 70s in terms of music and culture um, i'm also a big house head so if we know anything about house music you know the disco of the 70s heavily informed house music and um, this tune was actually written by Randall Stewart and Mavis you know sings the hell out of the song and the moment that they performed the song that I was able to watch on YouTube was when they performed this song in Ghana, you know. Uh and at that time in the in the early seventies when this song was being created, you know, think think about it. Ghana, Ghana is you know, Ghana's not even a hundred years old as a as a country. And it is a major site of also the transatlantic slave trade as we talk about reparations. And so Um, the song to me just also just embellishes a lot of what we have gone through. And it's not just about a conversation about money in terms of what is paid, but also it's what we owe each other as human beings? And what's the emotionality behind how we relate to one another from a space of redemption, grace, and healing? And so whenever we... At our meetings for Zeal are thinking about the next, you know, art or cultural project that we're working on with black creatives. The song pretty much is a, is a grounding force. And so it reminds me of how much music can be a grounding force. Art can be a grounding force in propelling, um, social action forward. So, uh, that's the story I'll share for now. But, uh, also I'll be heading back to Ghana, uh, in about two weeks you know, with my goddaughter and now cousin-in-law so that they can reunite with their dad. And I'm going to be reuniting with my dad, too, because he's back there in Ghana also. So I'm happy to join y'all and uh, just looking forward to the conversations and seeing what we learn uh, together uh, on and what we're able to grow together with once we uh, leave the call.
2: Thank you, Alan. Oh, I'm so excited for you to to go home and be with your family. Beautiful. Well, now, this is the part where we go to the questions, right? And we always ask those same two questions. So I'm going to ask Catherine to kick us off. What's dysfunctional around this topic that we need to have disappear? What would you say to that?
3: And thanks for letting me kick things off. So um, I want to just frame this by saying that I come from the perspective of um, a coach and a consultant and sort of part of the living system of philanthropy um, uh, I should say, institutional philanthropy, nonprofits, and grassroots networks. So that's where my contribution to social change um, is as a coach and a consultant. And I want to focus today for this topic primarily on institutional philanthropy or what we know as foundations, um, because this is a place, th- this is a subsector of our ecosystem that I see is having a lot of, lot of dysfunction. <laughs> that um, that it doesn't often see in itself. Um, and I think the primary dysfunction here is um, that institutional philanthropy is rooted in um, oppressive systems of capitalism. And, you know, when you think about how uh, these foundations were started and why they were started, the primary purpose was to hoard or preserve wealth, right? And so, and then to um, be able to perpetually draw on that wealth to serve the interests of the original um, funder, right? Or the family or whoever it is that designated that foundation to exist. And so to me, the roots are bad. Like I always say in my practice at Ruta Strategy, my, type, my sort of like motto is, if you want to grow, you have to start at the roots. And I think that within institutional philanthropy, the roots are rotten, and we've got to dig them up and start, start anew. Um, the way that this dysfunction plays out is through these established patterns of um, extractive relationships with the community, and specifically with uh, black and brown communities in the United States. Um, and it's really very much in line when you think about the sort of cultural history and the cultural heritage of the United States, there is uh, a very strong element of extraction in that history and in that heritage. And so understanding that the same, you know, organized money that started institutional philanthropy in the U.S. is also the same organized money that benefited from um, exploitative labor of black and brown bodies um, you can see that that connection is too close for us to try to separate them superficially. And that's why I say again that the roots are bad and we need to dig it up. Um, the way that I see this dysfunction actually playing out um, is in the relationships um, and power dynamics between institutional philanthropy and nonprofits or grassroots community networks. Um, you know, I see things like foundations collecting data or stories, um, extracting knowledge, wisdom, creativity from Black and Brown communities without any um, promise or actualization of um, an equal return on that valuable information or that valuable wisdom. Um, I see it where um, foundations will require um, organizations to do a whole lot of work, um, a whole lot of Um, paperwork or, um, you know, other steps, processes in the name of accountability, but what they get in return are small checks that are highly restricted and don't actually enable the organization to do the work in the way that is best for them or best for their communities. Um, And so, that to me is is the way that that dysfunction sort of gets expressed within our um, social change ecosystem. And I think another important component to remember of this, um, and one of the one of the ways that we sort of fall fall short when we start to work on organizational change, we have to remember that organizations are comprised of people. Like organizations don't exist without people, right? And so, um, so. You know, even though organizational structures are really what channel power and are able to move things like money and resources around, it's really the people in those organizations who have the decision-making power um, in order to, you know, set up those set up those um, resource allocation systems. And so, um, I don't know, Heather, if it's time for us to get into the possibilities, but I think I think the fact that organizations are made up of people is one of the great possibilities of our work. And it's really um, to me about being able to shift not only the mental models and um, ways of viewing the world that we hold as individuals, but also to shift our relationships with one another and the power dynamics that have come to be seen as cultural norms that are actually really extractive and um, don't do anything to serve this vision that he says it has about a more just and equal world. So I'll just um, I'll pause there and, uh, and yield to my other panelists.
2: So many great points. And you'll see that in the chat I, I pull out some of the key, key things that our speakers will say. And I use this to put in our key takeaways. So please contribute to those because I really go through every piece of the chat. Yes, yeah, such an important points. I love that you talked about the roots and the foundation, like the core of that is so important to interrogate and investigate and acknowledge and and repair. So, Tommy, I'd love you to take it away. Let us know your perspective.
4: Sure. Um, You know, my context uh, I'll speak from is very much rooted in uh, my highest passion, which is organizing black America for economic progress. And um, the focus on economics is important because the next step and our culture's maturity from fighting power to actually being power uh, requires economic expansion and wealth as a group. So everything on the higher context um, in which I look at things is really rooted around this North Star uh, 15 trillion, really contributing to the diaspora harnessing 15 trillion of total wealth of resources. And the reason why 15 trillion is important um, a, it's a score. And if you don't know the score, then the score won't change. And for the last 200 years, we've approached this thing called equality on social and moral terms. And we've made tons of progress. And all of us on this call today are primary benefactors of post-civil rights legacy. However, the next phase um, is rooted in economic equity. Well, 15 trillion is also important because we're 12% of the total population of original people here in America. And um, what should I say in these United States of aggression? And given that there's 125 trillion of baseline wealth and resources here, it's only equitable that we harness at least 12%, given that we're 12% of the population. So that would be 15 trillion. 15 trillion is also worth owed in reparations. And fifteen trillion is what the commercialization of black, so-called black image, likeness, labor, and endorsement contributes to the global economy, or generates for the global economy every single year. Um, so I want to start there because as I think about the problem that we're looking to solve, or at least for me, it's this historical legacy of commercial exploitation <clears throat> and. So much of that problem hinges on how we trade culture. Um, When you think about how foreigners first came in contact with African culture, it's always been through trade. People coming in, dropping off items, grabbing minerals, taking them back to their country, and then some way along that journey, um, original people became the property that was actually traded. But since then, this commodification of people for profit is still the dominating colonizing values that really rule the world when we look at the structures of our hierarchies and our systems. And the work that we're doing here and the conversation that we're having now is really rooted in untangling that. Some people use the word decolonizing, which is a good word, or or um or some some or, or disruption. But it's really about for me, I see with the work that are it's looking to shift values, shift values from taking, 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 exploding, 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 extracting, extracting, extracting. And instead, how can we create shared value? Shared value between the commercial entity that is looking to borrow the equity of a created thing by some other culture and um, restoring that equity back to the community that you're taking from. Uh, So these are the challenges that I see um, as an important piece of the puzzle to, A, help us get closer to $15 There's so much conversation around wealth gap. But wealth gap never really addresses the elephant in the room, is that black culture is an asset, It produces returns. Black culture is an intellectual property. We know that culture makes profits, but those profits are monopolized. And that causes a substantial amount of harm, impacting well-being, impeding environmental safety, and perpetuating this wealth gap. So my work, my focus around trade is really rooted in bringing under control all of our assets, the things that are already producing, and creating a model in which we can actually participate in the commercialization. That alone can get us to 15 trillion quickly, before we even start talking about financial literacy and being able to buy homes and investments. which is normally where that conversation goes around wealth gap. Let's take a look at what we already are producing and that we are actually being paid for, as Alan so eloquently said um, with that staple song earlier. So, commercial exploitation is the dysfunction that I'm inspired to address. Thank
1: you so much.
2: Yeah, that fifteen trillion is such a powerful number for all the different elements and what it exemplifies and what it includes. Alan, I want to hear from you.
5: Yeah, so I feel like there's just so much to build from from Tommy and also Catherine's points, and so I'll just say that uh, earlier in the year, uh, last year actually, I had the opportunity to work on a lot of the federal work. Um, around the HR 40 bill that's up right now in um, Congress for reparations in America. And that bill is actually decades old. And so as I'm listening to Catherine talk about the power dynamics, in particular in a space like philanthropy, uh, that I also share, I've been in the philanthropic space for 15 years, um, doing very similar work to Catherine. And so, um, and I'm listening to Tommy's points in terms of the work that original nation is doing and dedicated towards building that economic power and addressing the the promise and the and the and the opportunity of what 15 trillion dollars look looks like uh, to be able to uh, politically have black folks original people in america self govern the resources necessary to be able to have thriving communities that are able to politically govern themselves and do so uh, liberating themselves and liberating really all of us away from the legacy of settler colonialism and, and slavery, which enshrines the economic system that Catherine is speaking about, which is capitalism, which really survives off of the cultural practices of exploitation and extraction in our labor and how we produce goods and services, uh, and so that being said, the like the biggest thing in this conversation about reparations that I um, have been a part of really all of my life. My life is really lifelong work, just like the other uh, people on this panel. Uh, also, as an organizer doing this work, uh, but also as someone now who is using their organizing uh, to really look at culture as a through line of our politics and economics is just simply what is reparations? I think because of the political polarization that this issue has found itself here in America as it's gained traction uh, from the presidential debates of, tw- of 2020. And seeing the momentum now of local municipalities and jurisdictions saying they're going to take on reparations, I think I get a lot of questions on, well, what does that look like (laughs) in the United States when uh, the United States has been engaged in centuries of the atrocities of the legacy of, of, of slavery and colonialism and continuing it? And it is, it's literally in the facets of even how we create our livelihoods. And so where do we begin and, and where, do we, where do we end? And so um, one of the uh, points that I like to start with when talking about what is reparations is to talk about it from a global standpoint because of the transatlantic slave trade that I re- referenced earlier. And uh, pointing out the song, um, when will we be paid by the staple singers? And so, uh, in that global context, uh, as the United Nations has been established, right, which also, to be mindful, is based here in the United States, the United States has, has played a major role in the globalization of capitalism along with its other imperial forces that are in Europe. And so we can't have a conversation about the harms and the atrocities associated with breaking basic concerns of human rights without having a conversation about Africa. And what Tommy mentioned in terms of the ways that not only these, uh, imperialist and colonial powers, uh, pillaged resources and we're talking about everything from spices to raw material resources wood you know fish everything right but also people so the people also as property um, is akin to those raw material resources so imagine not only exploiting the labor but extracting as Tommy mentioned the culture of those people and now we are acculturating ourselves to a cultural power dynamic where it's profit over people and also it's only a few people who then have access to those resources. That speaks to Catherine's point that she was mentioning earlier about the manifestations of philanthropy. Because philanthropy as an institution is a colonial conception as well. right? Otherwise we wouldn't be talking about having charity. We would just be thinking about communal ways of supporting each other through mutuality and reciprocity. Right, so those distinctions are really important. So, you know, reparations is really a transitional justice process, right? That the United Nations puts forward in five basic principles for remedy and repair. And an organization called uh, Project Truth Reconciliation and Reparations has done an amazing job at looking at other countries who have put forward. Um, Remedies for right uh, 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 for right to remedy and repair uh, and so they have an analysis of in country um, endeavors that have taken this on, but the five basic principles basically uh, guarantee that there will be no repetition of said harms that uh, under the harms identified that there's actually direct compensation and restitution so Another example is, you know, I'm in Inglewood, California. I'm sure folks may have heard of the news of, of the, what happened in Manhattan Beach, uh, where land was taken by eminent domain, uh, from a black family who owned a parcel of land right near Manhattan Beach called Bruce's Beach of the Bruce's Family. Uh, that land was just returned by the state of California and the county facilitated that because they were the ones who held ownership and pastoralship of the land, and that land has now been returned back to the family. So, as a as part of reparations, there's actually a restitution and a compensation process for those peoples who were the recipients of the harm caused. Right. The third one. Um, uh, is it, it, uh, based on the, making sure that there's satisfaction under uh, international law. So I mentioned earlier in that song, like it's, it's not just about being paid, but it's about what we're owed to each other. And I think in talking about the emotional and mental suffering, for generations that have been impacted by the harms and the legacy of slavery and settler colonialism it's the reasons why we're having decades upon hundreds of years of conversation about the disparities that black people face not only here in America but across the globe because of the conception of poverty and wealth under, under a colonial and imperialist system. And then lastly, what does it mean to then rehabilitate right in the healing and the redemption what does it mean to provide the legal medical psychological services and structures of care that in example in the united states are not a part of the ways that we construct livelihood collectively in our policies we don't incentivize people institutions and structures to be able to create communal structures of care wealth building and the like. And so what are going to be the rehabilitative processes and policies that go alongside a reparations process that will get us there? And so ultimately, if we're talking about a process of reparations and and creating um, remedies, it means that we want to be able to, in a United States context, really shift away from a political system where only Few get to participate and make decisions and away from a capitalist economic system that then says we will continue to extract and exploit each other in order to make a living, you know, uh, which is like crazy making even as I say it. But reparations in the process would have us then say what does it mean to liberate ourselves from those things and create systems and structures that are really human centered and designed, right? Uh, rather than prioritizing, uh, the profits and said resources over people and really continuous, continuating the legacy of slavery and southern colonialism. So to me, um, that's like the biggest, you know, challenge in debate that I engage in in spaces where local municipalities, private companies, nonprofits and, gov- and governments at the state level are engaging in around what are reparations and what is the process in which we're going to facilitate being reparative um, in making sure that uh, we create different ways of being in systems that are really going to support and, f- and fuel us, especially during a time where we're dealing with multiple pandemics and other political atrocities that are continuing to happen.
2: Thank you for clarifying the different elements of reparations. I think it's so helpful. And could you put in the chat the link for the Project Truth Reconciliation so people can look at that that site? That would be great. Thank you. And for any of you that have questions that are popping up for you, please start putting them into the chat and we'll, we'll ask those in the Q&A. So we want to transition to our next question, which is more of a conversation between our three guests. Um, what's emerging that gives you hope? Catherine already started talking about some of the hope of, of the individual transformation, the individual, um, the people that make up systems and organizations, right? And that's just these sort of robotic entities. Um, so I would love, Catherine, if you could speak more about that. What What are you seeing that gives you hope that it is possible for change to address appropriation, to address reparations? What would you say?
3: Yeah. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm going to touch on a few different things here, but I think the common thread is that we have to begin to really grapple with, with power and what the, what our sources of power are. I think as a community organizer, I learned to have a very sort of um, strong orientation towards power and, and, and began learned to look at it as something that I already have and that is Um, it's not zero-sum. So just because I have a lot of it doesn't mean that no one else does. And I I don't think that that is a common orientation towards power. But I'm going to first give us some ways to think about what power is. And then I'm going to answer your question, Heather, about what is emerging that gives me hope. So um, one way that I like to think about power is that um, power is the product of relationships. and so when you think about um, the ways that our relationships to one another um, and the, the ways that we can share uh, resources, share community, share care for one another can generate more of the same. Um, I, I like to, to really remind myself that um, power is a product of relationships. Another definition of power that I like to use is that power defines the rules. And I say this a lot to my colleagues in philanthropy. Um, they're here writing rules about how this money gets distributed, and they could today decide to write new rules, right? And so um, just as a, as, as a way to remind those with a lot of institutional or concentrated power that, um, that you know, you have the opportunity to determine how this game gets played. Um, and then the final thing I'll share, and this will kind of lead me into my, my hopes for the future, um, is that power is organized people, organized money, and organized ideas, right? And so, if we can think about power in those three sort of constructions, it helps um, you know give us a framework for what we what I see emerging in this conversation about reparations, especially in in the nonprofit philanthropic ecosystem. Um, so the first thing that gives me hope is again that um, institutions are comprised of people and people thrive on relationships and relationships are uh, relationships channel power, right? So when I'm working with organizations, especially with um, people in, in philanthropic institutions, I really focus in on the one-on-one relationship. And I don't care if I'm working with the CEO or if I'm working with the IT coordinator. I'm always looking for an opportunity to unlock um, that internal revolution. I, the first revolution is internal. is another thing that I was taught as a community organizer. And I believe that if we can get to a place where each person is really consciously examining their own biases, their own mindsets, their own worldviews, and then using that discovery process to transfer what they're learning and they're, this, this sort of um, awakening this new awareness to others through their relationships, that's how we begin to shift systems over time. And it really speaks to what I think, um, I think Alan mentioned this, um, this idea about shifting values and ideas really begins with the individual and then flows out into relationships. And I have seen in my work with um, organizations, with leaders, especially in philanthropy, that 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 um, internal sort of awareness that people have when they begin to question what's wrong with the system? Why does this feel so extractive? Why does this feel so exploitative? And they really start to dig into what values are being violated by the systems that they're in. Then they can begin to, to um, shift the way that they relate to other people. And that has a very powerful, powerful ripple effect. So, um, so you know, being able to focus in on that and, and shift people's ideas about how they relate to not only each other but to the, their institutions and to the world around them give me a lot of hope as a coach and consultant. Um, another uh, thing that gives me hope um, relates to this idea that, that power can define the rules. And in the, in the institutional philanthropy space, I am um, hopeful that more and more organizations are beginning to see where they can um, just decide to do things differently, right? They can just decide that we're not going to have um, small grassroots networks or nonprofits write like super excruciating long grants in order to get $10,000. We're just going to give them $10,000 because we trust that they know what to do to serve their community. And because we as philanthropy have the same interests, like we want their communities to be healthy, we want their communities to be thriving. We're just gonna trust them to do that work. We're gonna give them what they need to do the work. Um, and I think that you know, there's a long way to go for um, large philanthropic institutions to have that kind of trust. But again, I, I do think it, it begins with shifting your values and your mindsets around whose money is this, right? Who does this, who do these resources actually belong to, and um, letting that um, that awareness ripple throughout the organization. Uh, the final thing that gives me hope is that I believe that you know. Social change is a an accumulation of lots and lots and lots of small choices, and that each person within a, a, an organization or within an ecosystem has the ability to make certain choices that will either perpetuate um, the status quo of extraction or disrupt the status quo and um, you know pave a path towards reparation and, and healing and liberation. And um, the, there's a, a tool from Race Forward called Equity Choice Points that I use a lot when I'm working with organizations. And it's just based on this idea that when we begin to sh- uh, make shifts and sort of the least, ex- least explicit um, conditions for system change, we can have the greatest impact. And the, the least explicit conditions for system change are mental models power dynamics and relationships. You start to get more explicit with policy change and process and budgets and things like that. And all of that's really important. But I believe that the greatest opportunities for transformation comes when we focus on doing our own work, liberating ourselves from these um, colonial mindsets that, that Alan talked about and then um, working to consciously shift through our choices and in everyday interactions, the relationships that we have with others and the, the power imbalances that exist, that might be hard to see until we see them. But once we see them, we can't ignore it. And and to that point, we if we're going to be um, sort of making the implicit more explicit, right? If we're going to be making power dynamics and relationship dynamics more explicit, we've got to be talking about race right like this is one thing that I'm always telling my partners in philanthropy like we you know you, you can't have um, a, a structural shift in your organization towards equity and not be willing to be explicit about the way that race and racism functions in your organization and you know it, it, there's a there's a um, a lot of writers a lot of thinkers around um, racial politics that, that say, um, that race is a fiction that is real. Right. And so even though, you know, this concept of race is something that we just sort of made up socially, it is, it might as well be real. And until it's no longer a widely accepted social construction, we've got to just be able to name it. And, um, and so that is, that's just one, one part of our ability to make the implicit conditions for change more explicit is being able to talk explicitly about race. Um, Yeah, so I think that those are some of my thoughts. I would really be curious to hear Alan and Tommy's reactions or thoughts or anything else you have to add.
2: That's great. That's great. Yeah, Alan or Tommy, jump in. Like, what, what gives you hope? What are you seeing in the future? What are you seeing as the possibility? Either one of you, hop right in, unmute.
5: Um, I feel like I'm I'm gonna be like a Nancy the Spider, you know, who's another, you know, uh, a Ashanti uh, trickster, and in many ways part of like uh, the uh, West African co- cosmology is really popular as a uh, quote-unquote fictional character. But I feel like um, he is very spiritual in nature and teaches us a lot about the solutions that we can find in problems that we happen to come across in our lives. and I really appreciate uh, Tommy's and also uh, Catherine's distinctions that are being made in talking about the power dynamics as it pertains to equity and um, equality uh, because I feel like there's a lot in hope and promise in the consciousness of our people. Uh, who are gaining much more awareness between the distinctions of the two, and how we can begin to practice being in right stewardship culturally with each other and to the land that we're on. You know, it's like one thing to do the land acknowledgments, it's another to then think about what is the history of the Tongva people and many tribal nations. Here in Turtle Island, right, and in other places where we may go and visit and build relationships and be with people. Especially with the advent of all this technology online and the evolution of Web 3.0, you know, there are all these ways that we're connecting that are also surfacing new problems that we need to be able to address that are creating new uh, inequities and disparities. And as Catherine mentioned, those things are very much about race because the minute we start talking about capitalism, capitalism in and of itself is racialized. And you can look at the work of Robin D.G. Kelly and others who, who, who talk about this. Uh, Sokley Carmichael, uh, otherwise known as Kwame Ture, talks about this. Uh, and so I, I really think in the context of reparations, it is it is is that we have an understanding about the distinctions between the two because then we will create false solutions for the problems that have been a part of this nation for, for hundreds of years and we'll continue to use that as the excuse as to why we can't we can't get to a different kind of condition that will keep us well in the midst of all of the chaos that we've created as a nation. So I feel like from the distinctions of having a greater consciousness of what it means to own the means of one's production and to steward those resources uh, responsibly and to be able to gain the surplus from those resources once they're commodified, to be able to redistribute those things equitably is part of an equity conversation, right? Because under capitalism, I can also say I want the same amount of money and the same amount of wealth as a white man who works at a Fortune 500 company. and From an equality standpoint, that that may be true. It's like, yes, we should have equal and the same as people as far as race and gender is concerned, but the deeper thing to interrogate is how did I actually get to that $100 million that I made this year? And if I made it off the backs of people's labor who are not being compensated equitably, who do not have health care, who are underinsured or not insured at all, who are unemployed, We have a problem, right? (laughs) There's something with our economic system and because of the way our economic system operates, our political and cultural ways that we operate need to be interrogated too. So we need to move from a space of being in competition in the marketplace to one of collaboration and cooperation where we can find alignment. And how we and how we create our livelihoods, especially during this pandemic. I, you know, my mom, you know, is retired. You know, she was working for Kaiser Permanente and all these people, and it was the first time I saw her. You know, creating local economy in her house. She was selling masks. She was growing fruits and vegetables in in her backyard. So when I hear Tommy talking about being, you know. And urban naturalists, I'm like, yo, that's, that's dope. That's refreshing to hear, you know, because it's the healing that our folks deserve, especially since they were till- our generations of people tilling the soil, working on land for free. And now in this generation to have folks be able to say, you know, I enjoy being in nature and not have being in nature attached to I'm working for somebody to produce a thing talks about the piece you mentioned earlier, uh, Heather, around what does it mean for us to tell our stories so that we can be in our full humanity, right? So that's why we're in these conversations. So to me, that, that gives me hope. The, the promise and the opportunity of raising people's consciousness to be in a practice of equity, justice, and liberation, right? Equality is a starting place to invite people in, but ultimately we want to get people into what is the consciousness and practice, your daily lifestyle of how you live your life in a way that stands in equity, justice, and liberation. Because The only way we're going to engage in a process of reparations if we actually stand in that and practice that. But standing in a conversation around equality is not going to address the racial wealth gap. And I'll tell you that right now because with the tax codes that we have in this current economic system, we will actually enshrine philanthropy until the end of days. (laughs) You know, like if we're serious about it, then it means all of us have a responsibility to be in right Stewardship, culturally, politically, and economically to each other. And my friend Beatrice Anderson has a really lovely TED talk that talks about what are the practices daily that we can engage in in our lives to be in right stewardship to each other. So I'm going to put that in the uh, chat for folks to be able to listen to. And then also my good friend Trevor Smith, who is at the organization I helped. Build uh, as a uh, senior fellow at PolicyLink when I entered into the work around reparations and learning more about the latest and greatest that are happening. That's happening locally on the ground and, and in states that are in active reparations processes. Uh, and his blog is called Reparations Daily-ish, so you can sign up for his um, his um, his Substack account because he's engaging in the narrative change initiative on reparations as we speak. Mm,
2: I love Z. Yes, definitely sign up. Check out those resources. That's fantastic. Oh, I I love all the things that you shared so far, and the resources are so important for all of us to go deeper. Tommy, Tommy mm-hmm. here. What like you do? <laughs>
6: yeah,
4: no, those are high power. Thank you all for the contributions. The smoke is here. Um, you know, I'm. What gives me hope is a few things. Um, on the most basic level, we're in the age of Aquarius. And an age lasts 2,600 years. We just started this age in 2013. So we're not even 10 years in yet. And the Age of Aquarius is all about raising consciousness. So all of us around the world are intuitively inspired to be more conscious about our choices, about our intentions, about our motivations for doing things. Age of request is also inspiring us to want to be more communal in how we operate and how we function. But it's in this consciousness that is sparing this through line that everyone is speaking to, which is values. So there's some values that uphold colonization. And to disrupt that, um, I look at the core values to be more restorative than repairing must be rooted in trust. And trust can be expressed through acknowledgement and language. And then the second value being reciprocity. Um, what is that exchange? Is that exchange equitable? How is that exchange happening in a restorative manner? Because right now, free enterprise permits the values of oppressive economy. It permits that. There's no consequence. There's no um, uh, fine (laughs) for continuing to oppress. It's just become normal. And like any abnormality that's done over time, it becomes normal. So as I focus this value change around trades, the thing that gives me hope is we are the solutions. We are the ones to bring the solutions to this table now and improving our trade practices. uh, Shifting from extractive and exploitative trade practices that do not acknowledge that do not exhibit reciprocity in an economic form to what I call ethical trade. And Ethical trade is simply about Acknowledging the stakeholders that are involved with involved creating a thing and profit sharing, which is the reciprocity. Being able to have a mechanism to profit share equitably back to those communities that are being extracted from. Because the reality is original people are not the only ones that are impacted by a productive economy. It's just that The level of extraction for our culture has been the most heinous and has been the most wealth building when we look at what it actually has done for the global economy. My work as a problem solver and as creating a solution is leveraging technology to do this. Uh, So I'm a founder and CEO of Made with Black Culture, and we are an ethical trade tech company that mix authenticates all products that are made using the image, likeness, labor, or endorsement of Black culture. So the same way you see an organic symbol on some bananas, or you see a culture food symbol on some water to help you be able to trust that, and that was created with the standards, and you know, how that product is being handled, handled in a way that's caring and equitable. What we've done is created a framework to help corporations validate their commercial use of Black culture using a blockchain watermarking system that stamps all products, digital or physical, that have been created using the creativity, likeness, or endorsement of Black culture. And what this stamp is really about is being a vehicle for ethical trade. Because what the stamp does is when you see it, um, it's attached to some socialization visual data where when you scan it, you'll be able to see all of the stakeholders in the supply chain who lend their creativity, lent their sauce, lent their innovation to the creation of this product. So you can actually see it and see that there's real people that are behind these products. The second thing it does is ensure that these stakeholders, both private and public, are paid voyages so that there can be some form of honorable exchange. And the final piece that technology does is take a percentage of the net profits from this produced thing and funnel it back into areas that are going to, public service areas that are going to truly improve the condition of original people. I call it mutual aid programs. So this is my way, our team's way of creating a solution to the way trade is happening, but specifically to have a way to change the way the world participates with Black culture. Because right now, as it stands, we have a world that loves to consume a highly monetized Black culture, yet Black culture itself is starving economically. So shifting that from being a grossly exploitative practice to more of a transformative and restorative practice hinges on ethical trade. And that's the thing that gives me hope And what also gives me hope is that collectively and when I think about consumers, because addressing racial equity through the lens of consumerism is a very poignant touchpoint that connects with everybody. Because as I mentioned, it's always been through trade. How people subscribe to culture now is by buying things. I buy that shirt because I subscribe to that culture. I buy this music because I subscribe to that culture. I move in this neighborhood because I subscribe to that culture. So we all are purchasing and participating in culture and creating a mechanism to funnel that consumerism impact back to the culture that we are participating in is one way to help us begin to level the playing field and improve our ultimate condition. So I'm I'm hopeful about that. I'm hopeful about that we're in a space now where people have real values. People really care about the products they're consuming. They want to know what's behind it. Who created it? Where did it come from? So just that alone, like anything, once you have awareness of the thing, um, auto-collection happens automatically once there's awareness. Uh, So I'm I'm really inspired um, by the state of the consciousness of the globe The fact that this conversation that we're having now is evidence that there's some values changing that people are interested in actually getting this and auto-collecting this in a way that's going to be equitable and creating shared value for all parties involved. And uh, that would be my thing that I'm most hopeful for. And I'm inspired because we all have the ability to impact this in our own way. Through our own daily practices, through our own corporate practices, through our own certain practice practices, um, we can exhibit and express these new values of trust and reciprocity in everything that we do.
2: Thank you, Tommy. So good. I, I love what the three of you have brought to this conversation from the what the individual can do with our consumerism, our awareness, our consciousness, their re- reconnection to our values. And asking those questions, but what can we do as organizations? What can we do as countries? As a global network, a global community? I, I love that you touch on all areas. While our speakers collect their thoughts, I'm just going to talk about the next episode, um, just to let you know what to look forward to. That I think is a great follow-on to this conversation. Um, uh, too many things open. <laughs> can you see that? Um, so, uh, I chuck is not a friend yet but jennifer and Kanisha are such great friends that i've just been trying to find ways to again like have them come together to this community so we're going to be continuing this conversation about policies and programs will result in the just transfer of wealth and so i think it's a great um secondary conversation so i'm going to stop sharing and put in the chat a link to register and then i will also um in the thank you email that you'll get. It will have all the links to all the different resources, key takeaways, and the um, place to register for the next episode. So join the LinkedIn group. I'll put that Google Doc back in here. Join the LinkedIn group. Um, engage, support our speakers. I'll ask each of our speakers to give a link where we can support their work. So please, if you feel like you have financial capacity and want to do that, please do that. If you can support um, Possibility Project. That's awesome, too. But I'm so glad that you're here, and I hope you continue to engage with this community and come back for more. So I want to hear from our speakers. Does anyone jump in. What are some parting words that you have for us in these last couple minutes before we go back to our days?
3: I'll kick off. Um, thank you,
2: Heather, again for
3: creating it and holding the space for all of us to just wrestle with these ideas. Um, one of the things that came up in my breakout group um, was, you know, how do we
1: how do we persist
3: through this age that you know that we're in that Tommy spoke about so so brilliantly, um, the age of transformation. And one of the um, ways that I remind myself of of uh, uh, you know the, the need to keep going is um, just by recognizing you know I don't I don't have enough power to transform things that are happening all around the world or all around the country but I do have an incredible amount of power and influence in my home with my child with children or other children that I um, that I take care of um, I have an incredible amount of influence with. My neighbors and my my most proximate community, and with, um, with those clients that I work with and, and people that I coach, and I believe that the um, you know the transfer of, of energy is a real thing. And um, by continuing to do my own work of healing and liberation, and by encouraging that in other people, I do think that you know over the course of this challenging age that we're in, we will be going to transformation. So that's my hopeful takeaway that and I hope is helpful to some of you. I love that. Definitely transform energy. Yes, for sure.
2: Tommy or Alan, want to jump in?
4: Sure. I I would, um, I guess my final word would be restore. Mm-hmm. And um I think that's something that we all can take and embody in our daily lives because restoring is really, really in approaching things from a perspective of how can I replenish? How can I add value? Um, And all of this is a function of reciprocity, but I think that mindset, that mindfulness, um, that kind of energy and approach to everything, whether I'm visiting a friend's home and I'm thinking, man, how can I add value to this space or whether I'm working on a project collectively in partnership with another entity, how can I um restore equity back to the thing that we're producing or creating together? Uh would be my takeaway. Because I think it's if it's in that mindset is that we can start healing
3: in front. Start- better
4: acknowledging each other and treating each other better <laughs> by having that mindset of how can I add value to this person that's being with empathy in a way that is restored. Mm, I love that. That's, that's going to be kind of
2: sticky note that I go back to. You. That's so mm-hmm. powerful. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, I feel like in my conversation with uh, Kyla, we were talking really, I feel like, about accountability in very uh, loving, kind, and very affirming, and then also very direct, you know, ways. And it makes me think of the work that uh, Zero has been working on for the past three years on a cultural strategy platform that is called Who Owns Black Art. Uh, We launched an exhibition on it about three years ago, um, and we're getting ready to launch our second volume of it this year at Art Basel in Miami. But we talked about in our group, even sometimes we're not, we don't recognize the, the moments where we may be giving our power away because we're not well informed about the actual access to power and the assets that are available to us. And so we talked about treaties, we talked about contracts, uh, as it pertained to land, and assessing, like, there are parcels of land that actually are not owned by, you know, private entities or by government, and so where are we as people self-organizing to be able to take hold of that? The same thing in arts and culture. We are having conversations about the uh, cultural reclamation of stolen artifacts uh, across the African diaspora, and so where are those moments to be able to engage and or organize around those Assets without having to go through illegitimate processes that are legitimized by imperialist and colonial forces. Where can we actually reclaim power there and move forward powerfully and and really creating spaces of accountability so that uh, processes of reparations can occur and and not do so from a place of assuming that. These so-called legitimate processes need to be uh, enacted and that we need to follow them, that they actually should be broken because they're illegitimate, illegitimate. And actually, many of them have broken consent of our free will anyway. So it was really interesting to be in that uh, conversation with Kyla, especially as we are closing out this conversation on appropriation and reparation. So those are going to be my closing thoughts in terms of what came out from our group. you.
2: So powerful. Oh, thank you, Catherine, Tommy, and Alan. I told y'all, like, individually amazing forces, and the three of you together was just fantastic. I just love, I love how these conversations come together, and so powerful. You all are just amazing. And thank you all for being here, and please join us for future episodes. You'll now get those emails when they're ready, and um, follow us all on LinkedIn to see when, when the action's happening. And I I hope this has planted many seeds and reaffirmed thoughts you already have and that you feel supported to keep focusing on that individual revolution that you can start with. And thank you all so much. I hope to see you soon. Bye-bye.
7: Welcome to the fourth lecture in our Reparations Speaker Series, hosted by the Psychiatry Department of Yale School of Medicine. My name is Christopher Fields, a postdoc in the department, and I will moderate the Q&A. Today, we have Yvette Carnell, a nationally recognized reparations advocate and founder of Hashtag ADOS, American Descendants of Slavery. Uh, We ask that you keep your questions uh, to the Q&A at the end. If you would like to ask a question, please raise your hand and you will be unmuted. Uh, You can also ask your question uh, anonymously via chat. Uh, First, uh, Dr. Kevin Cosby, president of Simmons College of Kentucky, which is the oldest HBCU in the state of Kentucky, will introduce Yvette Carnell. Uh, Dr. Cosby, in addition to uh, leading Simmons College of Kentucky, is also the senior pastor of St. Stephen Baptist Church, which has the largest African-American congregation in the state of Kentucky. Uh, Simmons College of Kentucky and St. Stephen Church uh, have a record of engaging with reparations scholarship. Uh, one example being the Angela Project, a three-year conference on reparations, which culminated on the uh, 400th year en- uh, commemoration of slavery in America in 2019. Um, the Angela Project is what's named after the first enslaved person to step off the slave ship in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. Uh, we're very grateful and honored to have Dr. Cosby introducing at Cornell. Dr. Cosby.
6: Thank you, Christopher, and I consider it a signature honor to introduce uh, one of the most consequential voices in the history of Black America. I will give you her formal uh, visa resume, and then I will make a very brief personal comment about our speaker. <clears throat> Yvette Cornell is the founder of the weekly political show Breaking Brown, and is also a writer of politics, race, and wealth. She is the originator of the hashtag. ADOS, American Descendants of Slavery, and her show was critical to making reparations a policy platform for the 2019 Democratic primary debates. Before embarking on a career in news media, she served as a congressional aide, first to Senator Barbara Boxer, and later to former Congressman Marion Barry. Yvette has been featured by national news outlets, including but not limited to the nation. The Guardian, Politico, Philadelphia Inquirer, Vox, The Intercept, ABC, NPR, and CNN, United Shades of America with Camus Bell. Yvette received a BA in political science from Howard uh, University. I might add that a leader is someone, first of all, who is going somewhere. And secondly, a leader is someone who is able to inspire others to go with them. The most consequential issue in black America today is the issue of reparations. All other issues are subordinate to this preeminent issue. And what Frederick Douglass was to abolitionism and Ida B. Wells was to the issue of lynching and Martin Luther King Jr. was to the issue of civil rights and social justice, I would submit to you that our speaker today, Yvette Carnell, will go down in the annals of history as the most uh, important voice for the advocacy of the American descendants of slavery on the issue of reparation. It is with great pride and I consider, as I said before, a signature honor to introduce to you our speaker, uh, my teacher and friend, Yvette Carnell.
1: Thank you, sir. Thank you sir, so much for that. And I, I, I and I wanna thank Yale and I wanna thank everyone who is here to participate um in what we're discussing today. And I think one of the things that I think and that I believe is that everyone is here to everyone here believes they're here to hear a speech about reparations or a speech about race. Um, but what you're really here to hear is a speech about misunderstandings, and there are some very clear misunderstandings that have led us to this space that we're here right now. So as I begin this, what I want to talk about just very briefly is, is my own journey into those kinds of misunderstandings around, around race and around freedom. And when I graduated from Howard University, as Dr. Cosby just said, I believed as so many other ADOS believe, that you can do anything, you can be anything, because that is kind of what we have been fed. That is kind of what the media teaches us, right, is that we can be the Cosby's. Everything is about you can work hard enough. Even our own heroes told us that. Uh, They said that Booker T. Washington said you cast down your bucket and you do the work and you become American. When I left school, I went to work on Capitol Hill, one of the things that I found there is that there were certain, again, misunderstandings. So I'm not saying good things cannot happen there and good things should not happen there. But what I saw happening there was accommodation, was accommodationist as policies as opposed to transformative policies that were meant to build ADOS into the real fabric of America that has to do with wealth it's not just about empathy in terms of how a white person or a person of color thinks about us. It is about whether or not you have the wealth to be American. So you begin to understand that this whole framework is built on a series of misunderstandings and that we are dealing with certain symptoms of a disease as opposed to the disease and how we understand that disease is a misunderstanding. You see, One of the misunderstandings, even when we talk about, we talked about Booker T. Washington, we have to talk about do-for-selferism, right? This idea that we can lift ourselves up. Nixon was a proponent of that. And there were a lot of people who got involved in that and said these people can lift themselves up. And we tried to do that. And then what happened, we ran straight into white monopolies who shut us out because they get to decide who buys and who sells. That's what they do. It's a misunderstanding to see this just in terms of money, just in terms of a check. When you go back to the Kerner Report, what the Kerner Report tells us is that, hey, this group is going to become a bottom cast. We're developing a caste system. Yet instead, though, we went and made the Cosby Show, and we promoted this idea of meritocracy, and we did not discuss the true reality of the fact that ADOS are a bottom cast because this country needs somebody to eat the failure. There has to be a group that has the nuclear facility, that has the the liquor stores, that, that eats the subprime mortgage and feeds into white capital. Again, it's another misunderstanding that race is just sort of a happenstance, that the creation of race is just something that happens as opposed to something that was created, built. Um, and, and, and weaponized against a group of people to remain on the bottom. Again, a misunderstanding that we have about who we are and what it means in terms of getting to that next level, in terms of what reparations means. So in order to move past the misunderstandings, we have to understand them and we have to unlearn. Learning is one thing. Unlearning the misunderstandings that we have is another thing altogether. Our politics are arranged by a specific kind of hierarchy. At the very bottom of that hierarchy, tethered to the bottom, like the Kerner Report said, is ADOs. And especially what you what you get when you read Thomas Piketty, what you begin to understand is there's no way for labor in terms of how money is going all the way to the top. Even look at what Jeff Bezos is worth now. Look at how much, look at how many, look at what kind of a multi-billionaire multi multi he is now. That money goes all the way to the top, and we're still tethered to the bottom, and we eat the failure, and he eats the wealth. And so the idea that labor, we can get out of here by labor, You you can get a good job, you can get a good college, that's not what happens. You have this idea of plugs and outlets. So what happens to ADOS is that we go to school, we go to college, as did I and, and a lot of ADOS, and some don't because we don't have the – we come from crumbling schools, right? We live in neighborhoods where, the, where the, you look at what have been replaced by charter schools. So we don't have that. But even when we have the plug, like we have the plug in our hand, there is no outlet to plug that into. And so the life that we have lived and have been encouraged to live, even when we do reach the pinnacle of ADAS success, is a lie. And so that is a misunderstanding of our exchange in America. And it goes all the way back to Booker. It goes all the way back to the to Great Migration when they said, well, the KKK is killing you here, but if you just move west, move to Chicago or wherever, you can have a better life. Well, we moved there and we find that there were white mobs, a lot of times ethnic mobs, who... who who treated us just as bad as anyone else and bombed us out of our homes and took what we had. So this country has left us running. And so in the essence, the Cosby show is is a kind of misunderstanding and it's a kind of social engineering. It's just one of many that creates in the mind of not only us as ADOS, it creates in the mind of you and those of you who are, who are other people of color or white America, that this thing is possible for ADOS, but it's not because we're tethered to the bottom for a very specific reason. And if you don't understand that, what you have is a misunderstanding. When we talk about the plunder of land, we all know and if you if you don't know, you can you can absolutely look that up. But our land was stripped from us. Our land was robbed from us and it was never given back. Nobody ever made us whole in any kind of way. So when Booker T says, cast down your bucket, I say, Booker T, on what land? Because that land was stripped away from us intentionally and methodically. We all know that the Confederates were able to get back. They were able to get back their wealth within a generation after being traitors to the country. That land was supposed to be redistributed to us, and it never happened. There has been a misunderstanding in terms of who we are, how we got here, and what needs to happen in order to make us whole. So before I even get to the part where we talk about reparations, we have to talk about the misunderstanding that we can somehow start from zero. We can start from today, knowing what we know about the data that we're going to go to zero wealth as a group by 2053 that we can start today and somehow build. That's not possible. If nobody makes up for the plunder, that's not possible. If nobody pays us back, that's not possible. If we try to depend on labor to make that happen, because there's a, not enough money in labor, the money has gone all the way up to the top. That's not possible. If you try to fix class with race, I mean, fix race with class, you cannot fix what has happened to us through a generalized kind of uplift of all people. That's not possible. And if you believe that, that is another kind of misunderstanding. 40% of all the homeless, we make up 40% of all the homeless and 52% of all the, all the, all the homeless families as ADOS. That's us. That's because we're tethered to the bottom. And what we're talking about when we talk about reparations is whether or not we survive in this country or whether or not we perish. Because what you – and understand that these numbers are pre-COVID. Post-COVID is even worse than this in terms of what has happened to the ADOS community because we don't have wealth transfers. We don't have generational wealth. Nobody can float us $1,000 or um, $2,000 for rent. Nobody can float us anything. And that is kind of the captured group that we are. So when you look at it, when you think about it, when you think about the bottom 50% of ADOS or worse, it's less than a dollar. in it's very rich and affluent country that we built. Because what ADOS really means when you talk about it, we're talking about a very specific contribution to this country and a very specific kind of oppression. And that oppression goes all the way from slavery to redlining to reconstruction. That goes all the way through mass incarceration. That's where we go. That's a very specific kind of oppression. And the Kerner report said you have to do something transformative about this. And nothing transformative transformative has happened. So the idea that we can kind of do it ourselves or we can use class to do it is, again, a misunderstanding. So what I'm here today to do is kind of clear up a, a, a large amount of misunderstanding. We have even misunderstand who we are, right? So we're not we're not just black in terms of melanin. The reason we don't have inheritance is not because of it's not because of blackness It's not because of melanin it's because of who we are in terms of my mother worked on a sharecropper farm i'm a I'm a light skinned person so it's not about melanin It's about the lineage that I have and what i don't have because of how my family and my lineage was broken up. It's because of, at the beginning of that story that I told you about Howard University, it's because of what I recognize because of of who I am and where I come from, that this stuff isn't going to work. What they're doing in terms of moving the chairs around and one chair gets a new pillow, that's not going to work. So we have to unlearn and deal with all the misunderstandings that we have had in order to move forward in terms of this conversation. People talk about a racial wealth gap, but it's really a lineage wealth gap. Because you have in the color of, if you look at the color of wealth Miami, if you look at that that study, if you look at the study the color of wealth in L.A., what you find is that even black immigrants in those countries, or or whether they be first gen or second, general they're doing better than us because failure is not baked into who they are. That is not who they are. And there is, there are studies that show there's a preference for them because they know that they don't carry the same baggage and the same claim that we have. So this is not a melanin-based conversation. This is about a very specific group that is owed a very specific thing. You know, I talk about all the time, you know, it, it, takes, it takes much longer to, to, to heal a wound than inflict the wound. So, you know, you all, I broke my ankle uh, playing basketball right and you all know that it took seconds i heard i heard my ankle snap pop and i was out right didn't feel anything till later because the body has a lot of ways of covering up you being real messed up so i didn't feel it but that was that was what it was it took me months to to heal that ankle so what we're talking about in terms of reparations for ADOs, we're not talking about a one-time cash out and move on because that's the way that white supremacy and white supremacists will say well hey look we gave them some money it's finished we're talking about a multi-generational project to fix a group that America, as a country, decided that was going to be on the bottom, was going to build the country and was going to be the garbage disposal for this country. It's going to take a lot longer to fix that wound than it did to inflict it. This is not about a one-time cash payout. Now, wealth is a part of this. You have to give wealth because wealth was taken away. But there also have to be protections in place to make sure that, 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 that capital can't just come into our communities and get that wealth back from us, right, through consumerism. So if you don't open up the doors to ownership so we can be a part of the ownership class, if you don't protect us, look at what happened in the subprime mortgage, right? Under Obama, first black president, not ADOS president, but you see what happened with him in terms of not really holding the banks accountable, for how they did that. Banks are drivers of wealth. That's kind of what they do. That's part of their business. We cannot be locked out of that part of wealth and wealth building, but that is exactly what is happening, and that is exactly what has happened, and it has happened for 400 years. So when I think about it, I'm not just here to have a conversation about reparations and what that looks like. I have to do as my charge to help you understand the the misunderstandings that led us to this place to believe that this was not due or that there's some other way to do it. What we're faced with now is the realization that America is not built on wealth now. America is built, America is built on wealth, but it's not built on income. America is built on wealth and intergenerational transfers. And in that kind of scheme, we fail. There's nothing we can do but fail. Because all of our wealth, intellectual property, everything that we have had has been stripped from us. So in order to make us whole as a group, the thing that has to happen when I talk about that wound that was inflicted, it has to be healed. And that healing has to be multi-generational. It would make no sense to have several generations tethered to the bottom and oppressed and abused by America and then say to yourself or to me or to anyone else that we're just going to drop a bunch of money on this one generation and call it quits. This is going to be a very complicated and complex process. That's just what it is. And there's no way around that. And it's going to be the next generation and the next because we have to close, people said, the racial wealth gap. It's really a lineage wealth gap, but we have to close that gap. And you have to pour resources into this community until that gap is closed. You have to pour protections in terms of policy into this community until that gap is closed. You have to do the work until that gap is closed. And I will point to the Jewish community in terms of the Holocaust. They don't just give, give resources and money and help to people who were in the Holocaust they give to their descendants because they're considered to be standing in the shoes. And what we would say here today is that ADOS is standing in the shoes. And there has to be a multi-generational because we're going to have to tweak this as we go. There are some things that are going to have to change. There are some things we have to have wealth and we have to have certain protections and there has to be within our policy framework some way to make that happen in a way that not only protects us and our wealth, but, but kind of ensures that we are taken incentivizes business as well to take us into that framework and say, hey, you didn't get this, we're going we're gonna to give this to you, there's a credit for this, there's a tax credit for that, because there has to be a way to build us into the ownership class, and so I, I kind of take issue to people say, well, it's just a check or it's just this. No, it's not just one thing. It's a lot of things that go together. It is a robust reparations plan that we're looking for. It's not something I've seen people write and, and, and experts in the field write that it's going to be a 15 year plan. And I think that is, that it's highly irresponsible because it has to be a generational plan, right? It has to be, you know, when you look at this, let me just read something. In 1962, there's $470 billion of household wealth. By 1980, it's $11 trillion. Today, it's over $100 trillion in household wealth, nearly entirely held in white hands. White America has locked in their privileges and sold us, and, and, and sold us Cosby and LeBron James to kind of take away from the fact that those, the rest of us have nothing, and we have been so embarrassed about having nothing that we have not shared that with anyone. And we have kind of just, you know, kept our pain to ourselves while we're on the verge of a $70 trillion transfer of of, of, from white boomers to their children. And our parents have nothing to transfer. And that transfer was stolen and that transfer was plundered. And so what has to happen now is that there has to be, you know, we have got, we tried everything else. You see that money is about to be passed down from, 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 from white boomers and to, to their children. And some of that is being passed down now thanks to COVID. We tried, we tried do-for-selfism. We tried, we tried black business. You ate us up. You gobbled us up. Stole our intellectual property. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, that has not been tried by us and it doesn't work. So we are back to reparations. You all remember when the general had to come to the black people and say, I know I promised y'all 40 acres and a mule. And thanks to um, Andrew Johnson, that president at that time, none of that happened. That's the consequence of politics. We didn't get what we were owed. We didn't get what we would do. And when we tried to do it, even in terms of land, that land was stripped away from us. We were great at farming. Like if, if, you know, even in people's terms, talk about (laughs) agribusiness, great at all of that. But you can't do it if your own government weaponizes itself against you. And that has been the story of our existence here. So when I talk to Yale and when I talk to the people in this room, what I'm saying to you is that this is a multi-generational project that we need the people who are at the helm of academia to quantify, right, to qualify, to put this. We have a lot of data right now to put this all together, to put a cost to it. And decide how we are going to use this bill that we build as a reparations bill, right, to actually redistribute wealth in a way that protects ADOS and finally pays us to do that America promised us a long time ago that, ne- that it never gave us. And if we don't have that, when we talk about urgency, if we don't have that, it's not hyperbolic for me to say that we're finished. There will be diversity in your new – there will be diversity. There will be people that come from other countries who are brown. Um, there, will, there will be uh, black people who look like us who don't come from what we come from um, around you, but it won't be us, and you will have shut out us, and you will have kind of relegated us to poverty and homelessness. If you don't take seriously a reparations project that makes us whole, and that's why I'm here, because Yale is the place where you all, in terms of what you do and how you do it, and you're the best at doing it in terms of everybody knows Yale and Harvard, right? So you all are essential in terms of how this project works and what you're willing to contribute to. What, I, what I've said before is a multi generational. Um, project, And we have to have it because we can't exist without intergenerational wealth transfers. And we've already done AB, you know, we've already done a reparations bill uh, in terms of an ADOS chapter in California. We've already done that. But those who are serious about reparations need to get on board with us and help us because you have tools that we don't have and we need to work together in order to to, to make that happen. And if it doesn't happen, ADOS is in for a lot of trouble. You'll have black people, but it won't be people who come from chattel slavery. So I, I just want to end it there, and I want to thank you, Chris.
7: Thank you so much uh, for that powerful talk, um, Ms. Cornell. So <coughs> now I would like to open it up for Q&A. Um, so um, as stated earlier, if you would like to uh, speak your question, uh, please raise your hand. We will unmute you. Uh, you can also post your question anonymously in the chat. Um, and I guess I'll start it off um, in your to, to reiterate your point that it takes longer to heal a wound than inflict it. Um, how do you visualize, outside of being a, a multi-generational project, um, are there other dimensions that are important to, to focus on outside of economics? Um, how important is, there are some people who are, are maybe trying to decenter uh, the economic portion of, of reparations. How important is it to center the economics? And uh, what, what do you envision as a comprehensive reparations uh, project? Uh, what would that look like?
1: Well, that would look, it would be so, I don't think anybody's ever built a bill, like what, kind, what I have in my mind. <laughs> so let me just say that. Um, in the sense of there has to be a, a wealth transfer, right? But you also have to have protections. One of the things that, that has happened in America, even when you look back to, to federal housing and that sort of thing, you saw them say, like, you can have this. You saw the Supreme Court said you can't do this. And then nobody protected us because politics is personnel, right? I think Elizabeth Warren said that politics is personnel. So you also have to put people in place. You know, you look, at, you look at Mitt Romney's father, you know, who actually was implementing and pushing those policies, even though the Nixon administration didn't want those policies to happen. So economics, though, is key in America because America is expensive. When you talk about having a nice home and having to have fifteen or $20,000 down, you might as well, in terms of us, say you have to have hit the lottery. We don't have it. So economics has to be key. But the question becomes, how do you keep that money? Because, because... What, what white supremacist structures love to do is say, we're not, going to put you, we're not going to put you in the flow of wealth and wealth building. We have all of those. We have all of that social capital because how the Confederates got back in was through social capital. That's how they got back into the flow of money. We don't have any social capital. So in terms of how we get back into that flow, it's going to have to be the government saying you have to put these people back into the flow of wealth building. You have to do that. And you have to find a way to give them back what was taken. So if the land is not for sale, find it somewhere else. You have to put them back into land ownership because you took it. We have to have we, – we can't do it just with income. So even when you talk about factories and that sort of thing, right, we talk about factories, but we don't have any why. It's not because we haven't built businesses. There was a great story about a, a man who built a, – a black person who built a newspaper way back in the day, Adolf's man, who the, – the, the person who built down the newspaper was – uh, the newspaper, uh, his newspaper plant was a white man who worked for him. You know, you can go back to, you can go back to Black Wall Street. You can go back to all of these times when we have been plundered. And you have to not only put us in a position to own what we own and have what we have and protect us from from, from these sort of uh, white capitalist predators who just say want to give the money back to me. And that's what you want to do. Because we've never had it. We've never been trained in wealth building. So at a certain point, you want to be like, yeah, I like a Ferrari or I like this. There has to be a way to do that to kind of design it for specific plans that that, that build wealth as opposed to just what everyone would like us to do is to get in the lane of consumerism and just, oh, you got a bunch of money. Let's go buy some stuff. Reparations is a seed that we need to plant to build wealth for future generations, and America, America needs to keep pouring wealth into the group until that racial wealth gap is zero, we're equal, we're equivalent, and it makes no sense, when you look at the charts, what you'll see is that even people who have come from other, from other countries, whether they be Latinos, whether they be black Africans, whether, who, no matter who they are, whether they be Europeans, they come here and they catapult, you know why? Because America has a way of making certain people white and it has nothing to do with melanin and it leaves us at the bottom and they tell everybody else that's these Negroes. They just don't know how to work. They don't they don't know they have a problem with their culture. They're somehow deficient. So there has to be there have to be policies in place to protect that wealth protection, to protect that wealth. But there also have to be policies in place that make sure that when we do have the wealth, we're able to access certain business arenas. We're able to access certain and buy certain land. So a landowner can say, I don't want to sell to you and it it's my land I won't sell. I don't want to sell to a black person It drives down it drives down the the, the, the the quality of the neighborhood. There have to be policies in place that ensure that that cannot happen. And those have to be very, very, very robust policies. There have to be policies in place in terms of how we're schooled. You can't just say like, the, the, the Chicago tried to say, well, you, you're not, the Chicago, um, I mean, Illinois Supreme Court, I think tried to say, well, you're not entitled to schooling. How? By what right? By what right is that equal protection? So there are a lot of laws that have to kind of go in tandem with reparations. And what I kind of look to um, Yale and and other premier institutions to do is to kind of help us decide what those other things and what those other laws are that should go in tandem to what we're building. We have a
7: question
4: from Joshua Morgan. Hi, Yvette. Thanks for being here tonight and for helping us all get an understanding on how to advocate for ourselves and, and for our allies. My question has to do with how do we advocate for this lineage claim that we're making and this justice claim that we're making, especially on college campuses? And when we're assaulted with things such as, oh, you're xenophobic or you're not Diversifying or inclusive enough because it's such a narrow, specific justice claim that we're
7: advocating.
1: Thank you, fam. I, I appreciate that. And I, I think you know, when we talk about our agenda, right? We have an. I say I always say reparations is the heartbeat of a black agenda. So if you if you are a black immigrant in this country, especially if you have kids and if you have a lived experience here, the black agenda does cover you, right? It is only the reparations agenda that does not cover you. And that's because if you came over here voluntarily to a racist country, it's not the same as coming from the chattel slaves who built the country and lived through reconstruction and lived through um, 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 redlining and lived through mass incarceration and have been tethered to the bottom. Uh, it is just not the same. So there is a black agenda that actually covers your lived experience. But lived experience is not lineage. And lived experience is, is a very different thing in terms of what your contribution to the country was and is. You have gotten, as a person who has come here and made a better life for yourself, you have gotten more from this country than the people who built the country from scratch and have gotten nothing. So I think you have to talk about it in terms of the reason we're carving out this space as ADOS, as a specific lineage, is because we have a specific cost. And we have a specific contribution to this country that no one else has, right? And so that is, that is how you have to kind of speak to that. You have to speak to the specificity. And let's be honest, everybody else always has the specificity. I don't have any problem with a Haitian American or a Jamaican American or a Nigerian American or a Ghanaian American telling me what, where they come from and what their lineage is. And, and that's wonderful. I understand who you are, and I respect that. I need everyone else to respect us, too, in terms of what we are in this country and what our contribution has been. You know, when you talk about the Immigration Act of 1965, it came right after the Civil Rights Act. So a lot of people, a lot of black immigrants and other brown people who are here are here because of the freedom struggle of ADOS. And so there has to be some respect for what we built that allows you to come here and make a life for yourself, right? And there also has to be some support for for what has happened to us. And we've already given our part in terms of what we've done. And let me just say this. ADOS shows up for everybody. Whether you're talking about, I'm going to do the way, talking about Botham Jean, whenever a black immigrant is assaulted, we don't ask, well, are they ADOS or a black immigrant? We show up and we show out and we stand for you. And I think the call to action right now is for Black immigrants to stand for us. We've always stand for you. We've never, we have never, we have never had any kind of tribalism. We have never said that that you know Black immigrants can't live in our neighborhood. We have never done some of the stuff we've seen around the world where people throw Molotov cocktails and try to run people out of their communities. We've never done any of that. We have always been here for you. And I would say to Black immigrants, now is the time for you to be here for us.
2: Thank you for, for that. Um, I am going to unmute Herbert Campbell to ask a question uh, next, and then we have a bunch of questions being sent to me privately as well as in the chat that we will address. So let's hear from Herbert.
8: Uh, yeah, I guess my question is, I mean, I I, just, I know that in terms of justice, reparations is, is the right thing to do in terms of, you know, just Justice and morally, but outside of that, is there an economic benefit to, um you know, just to the overall American American economy if reparations, reparations claims
1: met? Well, there has there is actually an economist. I can't remember her name, but I think she used to work for for I don't know whether it was JP or Citibank, but she said that. She said that racism costs in terms of it cost America like sixteen trillion. That's what it cost to the economy. Sixteen million lost um, to the economy. So when you look at when you look at what when you look at what she says, it's not just a loss to Ados, which is my primary concern. It's a loss to the economy for this kind of racism to run rampant in the system in terms of, think of how many, think of how many ADOS kids who, because they don't have good kids, I mean, because they don't have good schools or because they don't have good wealth, right? because they don't have intergenerational transfers, cannot make it to the helms of these schools to actually contribute to the economy the way that they should be able to contribute to the economy in a meritocratic society. And so there is a loss not only to us, there is a loss to the overall economy because of the racism and the, especially the anti-ADOSness that this, country, that this country continues to kind of um, promote.
2: So we
7: have a question from uh, the chat. Uh, How do you effectively address reparations on a policy level? Do we start on a community level, a state level, or a federal level?
1: Well, I think, you know, even in terms of what California did, we can start on a community level, but Mm -hmm. understand one thing, that is not reparations. Because what was done to us was done by the federal government. And I'm not saying state governments weren't Mm -hmm. involved. But you have to be very careful or it becomes a dodge. So people will say, oh, well, we had, we had reparations plans in a bunch of communities and a bunch of cities and stuff, and so, or a bunch of states, and so now we're finished. No, that's not enough. What they can do, though, what localities can do is provide a kind of framework for who is included and, and what that looks like and how they're trying to implement it. That can be done. But the federal government has to take the lead at some point in doing this because the federal government took the lead in in opp- in oppressing us. The federal government took the lead in terms of uh, President mm-hmm. Andrew Johnson in terms of deciding that we were not after Lincoln was assassinated and deciding that we were not going to get our due. The uh, Truman took uh, uh, Harry Truman took the lead in, in not doing anything uh, uh, until until very late, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of lynchings and. and and uh, uh in terms of airing that racist movie at the White House and and furthering white supremacy, so the federal government has taken a lead even in terms of when you talk about fDR and talk you talk about his housing and how that segregated us and in, even in, even in communities where where ados and white communities had already integrated, you still put up and erected even in the New deal a lot of stuff that segregated us and relegated us to to the ghettos in terms of how that started so you You still have, the federal government has to take a lead, and the local government doing things, I'm not opposed to it, but it cannot be a dodge, and it cannot be a dodge away from ADOS. You cannot say minority. It cannot be about just people of color. It cannot be about just black people. It has to be about a very specific group of people in terms of being able, at least with one parent, to trace yourself back to slavery and sharecroppers and everything that happened. There was a specific kind of harm done to our community, and there has to be a specific kind of redress. And it's not a minority redress or people of color redress. It's an ADOS redress.
7: So we have a question from Antonio Moore.
8: Um, He shared a couple slides. Um, I just wanted to come in and just make sure that we – I'm one of the co-founders of ADOS along with Yvette. And I think one of the, the quintessential issues we're having now is people just don't understand the scale of where we're at. This chart was done by Ray Diallo. I added colors. Ray Diallo being the billionaire, one of the richest men in, in the world. And what he showed is that basically the last time the bottom 90 and the top 0. 0.1 had the same amount of wealth was 1930. Well, the lines were going to cross when he made the chart. They crossed now. What you see is that a lot of people don't understand the necessity of reparations and think it's just uh, uh, something that you can add on or live without because they don't understand this chart. Now, across the uh, horizontal is time, but I'm going to in a second add numbers so you also can see numbers because it's just as important, meaning how much wealth was in American households in 1930 versus today. And one of the things that you see is that our psyche, and here it says black psyche, but it's white psyche as well, is built off of the time period when this line is going up, this red line. This red line is the share of wealth held by the bottom 90. So in 1980, it peaks out at around 35% of all of the wealth in households. It's in the bottom 90. There's a great amount of sharing, New Deal, affirmative Action. We then have Reagan with deregulation and everything else period the other way. And by today what you see is for the first time since the Depression, the bottom ninety and to the top twenty one have the same amount of wealth again. The difference being and on the second chart you can show white America now has a hundred trillion dollars of wealth. So we talk about Dr. King and we talk about civil rights. And I totally understand. But I don't think we understand the the gravity of how the moment has changed over a, really a single lifetime. So White America in 19 – I mean, America at large in 1962 has about $473 billion in household wealth. By the time you get to 80, it's at like $2.4 trillion. By the time you get to 89, it's at $24 trillion.